John chapter 17. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you've given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours and all you have is mine and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so that scripture would be fulfilled. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you've given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me, because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. This is the word of God. In life, there are always settings where certain conversations are off limits to us. Uh, perhaps this is clear in early age at school, you know, in general, children are free to wander around 
much of the school, I guess. Um, but there are a few places that are off limits, and one such place is the staff room. Children are never allowed in the staff room. They don't have the chance to listen to what the teachers talk about behind closed doors. And it's the kind of it's the same thing at work as well. I used to work in a large open plan office, so everybody um, was sat in a big room on rows of desks, quite close to each other. But there were still individual offices where senior management would meet, and they'd have important conversations with the door shut. And I was not privy to those conversations. Now, these sorts of offices, they sometimes have glass walls, and if you peek through, you can see people in there gesticulating, kind of moving their mouths, but you can't hear what they're saying. You can't make it out. You're not privy to those conversations. Now, it's easy to be curious or even nosy, isn't it? When I was at school, I'm, I'm sure I wondered, what exactly do teachers talk about in that staff room behind that closed door? Maybe it's better that I didn't know. But we often talk about wanting to be a fly on the wall in certain rooms, uh, privy to certain conversations, don't we? Imagine being a fly on the wall um, in 10 Downing Street or in Buckingham Palace or even the White House. It would be fascinating to listen into those high-level conversations that important people have. But they're off limits to us, aren't they? Often because it would not be appropriate for us to hear those conversations those doors remain closed, and we're left to our imaginations. But in today's passage, one of the most high-level conversations in history is opened up to us. Now, forget the divide between teacher and pupil, manager and worker, even prime minister and citizens of a state. In this passage of scripture, we as humans, as frail creatures, are able to listen in on communication within God himself. Because here, Jesus prays. Now, he's spoken at length to his disciples over the last few chapters before his departure. And we've been following those chapters over the last few weeks in this series. But we finish our series today as Jesus stops talking to the disciples and starts talking to his father, the divine son communicating with his divine father. Now we're told a lot in the gospels that Jesus prays, but it's pretty rare that we get to see what he actually says. But this chapter not only um, gives us his words, but it's an extended passage. We get a real look into what he says. It's a stunning prayer. It's been considered one of the high points of the whole New Testament. This high-level conversation, as it were, has been made available to us. We can listen in. The door is open. And so we as creatures are given this precious glimpse, even into the inner workings of the Trinity. Now, I'm not over-egging it to say that these words, if we grasp them, will change our lives. So we should probably listen, shouldn't we? Now, prayer is an expression of desire, isn't it? We pray for the things that we want. So today we're going to ask the question, what is it that Jesus wants? What does Jesus desire? I think we see a few things in this passage. We see that he desires glory. He desires protection. And he desires unity. Firstly, then, 
Jesus desires glory. That's summed up in verses 1 to 5 of his prayer. And we see it front and centre in verse 1. Jesus prays, Father, glorify your son. Glorify your son. Now this phrase, glorify, it kind of pulls together a few different strands and ideas. But basically what it means is to make something glorious, to make it splendid, radiant, or to reveal it as such so that other people will praise it. They'll see it and think it's amazing. Okay, so glory is something that is it's revealed, but it's also acknowledged by others. Now, the most beautiful building I've ever seen in my life is the Sagrada Familia. It's the cathedral in Barcelona, a huge church. It was designed by uh, Antony Gaudi. Uh, it's been under construction for 140 years. They're still working on it, but it's absolutely incredible. Uh, the architecture, the stonework, I had the chance to go inside and, and, and see uh, the interior of it. It's, it's utterly stunning, completely beautiful. Now, in one sense, I glorify that building. I, I sort of acknowledge it as being this beautiful thing. I gush about it. I tell others about it. I think it's amazing. But there's another sense in which the builders and the architects and the trustees have glorified it because they are the ones who have worked on it. They are the ones who are making it look radiant and they are the ones who are showing it to the world so that you know tourists like me can enjoy it. Now, in the same way, Jesus asks to be glorified in this second sense. He wants his father to show him to be glorious to show him to be radiant so that others will see him and give him praise. Now, before we label Jesus a kind of power-hungry narcissist, look again at verse 1. He says, glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. So Jesus' utmost goal is not for himself. He seeks glory only so in turn his father will be glorified. That's his utmost aim. Now we're one verse into this prayer and already right off the bat we've got something that is striking, isn't it? Because as we're letting on this divine conversation, what is it that we hear first of all? Not a self-seeking grab for the limelight. No, at heart Jesus is a son who adores his father. So much so, he wants others to see how great his father is and he wants others to love him as much as he does. So Jesus wants his father's glory. Now what is going to trigger this glorification? Well, the clue we have is in verse 1 where Jesus says, the hour has come. The hour has come. A time has come that is going to enable him, it says in verse 2, to um, give eternal life to his followers. Now, what is Jesus referring to here? He's referring to his death. So his death is going to glorify him, Jesus, and in turn it's going to glorify his father. Now, at one level, this is, or it sounds, absurd. Because we all know Jesus' death came by crucifixion. And the words crucifixion and glory don't really belong in the same 
sentence. In fact, it's shocking to put the two together. Crucifixion, death on a cross, was slow and it was agonizing. It was used by the Romans um, as a degrading, um, state-sponsored execution of the very basest people. Only slaves um, and people at that level would be um, crucified. It was designed to be shameful. You were crucified naked. It was agonizing. Any dignity that you had left was stripped of you as you died this slow, painful death. And it's interesting, even in Roman society, they thought um, crucifixion was shameful. So much so that historians have noted that there are barely any references to crucifixion in ancient Roman literature. And the reason is that it was so bad that people didn't even want to talk about it. It was kind of beneath you and beneath you if you were a member of polite society to even mention crucifixion. So at one level, there's nothing glorious about the cross. And yet, Jesus says that the Son and his Father, he prays that they would be glorified in the cross. How can that be so? Well, because it's in the cross that the Father and the Son show the lengths that they would go to to save us. See, it's the cross that brings eternal life. Jesus' death, dying in the place of his enemies, through that he brings eternal life to us, sinful, broken beings. Now, if the Son would be willing to endure that, the cross, and if the Father would be willing to send his beloved Son there to the cross, wow, I mean, if that's true and he does that for us, we must be more loved than we can ever imagine. So the cross, as horrid as it is, is an act of sacrificial love. And so, in a strange but wonderful way, the cross is Jesus' glory. We see Jesus as glorious not just because he is radiating with beams of light, as verse 5 says that he will be when he returns to his Father. His glory is shown in his crucified body, bloody and broken, nailed to a cross. And this is how Jesus and his Father are going to be praised and honoured. kind of works like this. You know, a Christian will receive the eternal life that Jesus offers when they come to trust in him. And when they receive that eternal life, look at how it's defined in verse 3. Eternal life is in knowing God and knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. So when someone comes to faith in Jesus, when they become a Christian... They come to know God for who he is. Not a grandfather in the sky. Not just a philosophical concept in which to have interesting discussions and arguments about. Not even a powerful being who seems to have let me down because I haven't got what I want in my life this, this far. No, no, no. He is an awesome being. When Christians see the cross, they take in God for who he is an amazing, glorious being. And what happens is, kind of just like I glorified the um, architecture of the Sagrada Familia in a much more profound, life-changing sense, Christians glorify God. They want to worship and praise Jesus. They want to worship and praise his Father. That's what happens. We look at the cross and we say, wow, look at that. Isn't it amazing? 
that the son would love me so much he would die for me, that the father would love me so much he would send his son. And our lives are reoriented to honour God. This is what Jesus desires. To fulfil his father's rescue plan for humanity and so give him glory. He wants to see his father honoured. And so I guess the question for us at this point then is do we desire what Jesus desires? Do we have as high a view of God as he does? Do we want to see the son honoured? Do we want to see the father honoured? Because you know, Christian friend, he's your father too. And Jesus is your brother. You've been brought into this family. You've been given the eternal life of knowing them forever. Isn't it right? that we share that desire that Jesus has, to see the Father made much of, to see Jesus made much of. I wonder what needs to change in your life so that you can bring greater glory to God and what is standing in the way of that? Maybe that's something for you to ponder. So front and centre in this prayer, Jesus asks for glory. But don't get the idea that Jesus only cares about himself and his father, himself and his father, because for the bulk of this chapter, he actually prays for Christians. So we've seen he prays for glory. Secondly, he prays for protection, and that's in verse 6 to 19, and protection not for himself, but for his disciples. So in this part of the prayer, Jesus turns his attention away from his impending death and his return to the father to the disciples who are his precious friends. He cares for them so much. Now, Jesus knows he's going to leave them. Look at verse 11. It says, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. Jesus loves these guys and his heart goes out to them. In verse 6 to 8, he he affirms the fact that these guys are his closest friends and that they are his, um, that they trust him. They've received um, his word. Now, we know they're far from perfect, but at a base level, these disciples love Jesus and have committed themselves to him. And so it says in verse 9 that Jesus specifically wants to pray for them. So what does he pray for them? Verse 11, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. So in verse 12, Jesus says, you know, while I was with them, I protected them, I kept them safe. But now Jesus is departing. He wants to ensure that his father um, is going to protect them as well. Now, this protection is not so much from persecution or suffering or pain. Unfortunately, it kind of goes with the territory as a Christian um, that we face those sorts of things. But rather, Jesus is praying that they would be protected from going astray spiritually. So the word protect there in some translations is the word keep. Keep them in the faith. Keep them true to your name. That's the thing that Jesus prays. And the rest of this section shows us why they would need that protection. Look at verse 14 to 15. I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Now, these disciples, they are going to be the leaders of the flourishing, growing church. The first leaders after Jesus, in fact. They have an important job and they're also going to be doing this job in enemy territory. They are in 
the world. And that's a phrase that refers to the order of things set up in the world in rebellion against God, which is what all humans are, naturally. So the world is marked by hostility towards Jesus and towards his message. And it's shown in the attitude of the Pharisees. The disciples would have already got a taste of this. Um, and they are going to face more of it in the time to come. It's a dangerous place, the world. And the temptation for the disciples is that they may want to give it all in and go for an easy life to kind of step away from persecution, step away from the truth and basically turn their backs on Jesus because it's hard. Now to do so would be tragic. And Jesus says, verse 15, it would be a victory for the evil one, a reference to a spiritual opponent of Jesus and his church called Satan. You see, there is always going to be a tension here because Christians are supposed to be in the world. They're not to segregate themselves off, to ghettoize themselves. How else, if they, if they did that, how else could they, you know, how could they share the gospel with others? How could they tell others about Jesus? They, they couldn't. They have to be in the world. But being in the world always carries the danger of becoming like it. And this is true even for Christian leaders. And the same is true today. I've got a book here that I've read. Um, it's called Dangerous Calling. Dangerous Calling. And it's written by a guy called Paul Tripp. And it's written kind of with people like me in mind. People who work um, for churches, who are in Christian leadership. And the point of the book is to talk about the dangers that come with being in Christian leadership. Um, dangers to compromise the faith. Dangers to even leave the faith altogether. It's a really good book. But there is a tragic irony that comes with this book. On the back, there are four blurbs from different pastors who talk about how great the book is. You know how blurbs work. They say things like probing insight and robust realism. They say, this is a must buy. Um, this book is great. It's excellent. You know, high praise for this book. But the sad thing is that two of the four leaders who have written blurbs for this book have actually disqualified themselves from ministry. One has been, uh, was engaged in an extramarital affair that led to divorce from his wife and stepping down from a church. The other has left Christianity 